next week. I want to encourage you to be on time. Normally, I don't care. I'm just glad you're here. But next week, uh, we're doing something a little different in our services, and it will be it will be better for you if you're on time. How about that? So I just want to encourage you. Don't if you're going to be late, come anyway. But um, just want to throw that out there. A couple of things. We've been talking about joy. Joy is our theme. Uh, Joy is a a delight in your life that runs deeper than pain or pleasure. Joy and happiness are not the same thing. Happiness is an emotion that's almost always tied to external circumstances. Happiness is wonderful. There's nothing wrong with it. If you're happy, most likely you're joyful as well. But God never commands us to feel. Joy is not a feeling. Again, it's this state of delight in your life that uh, is true regardless of your external circumstances. So you can be... If you're happy, you're most likely joyful, but you can be joyful without being happy. Uh, We're actually commanded to be joyful in the Bible in several different places. Paul says to rejoice in the Lord always. He says always be full of joy. Jesus says he came that we would have the fullness of joy. One of the fruits of the Spirit is joy. So we want to be people of joy. And that's one of the reasons that we're focusing on this during Advent. But I don't want you to confuse joy with happiness. So this week I want to look at logistics. I don't know if that's something that you think about when you think about Christmas. If logistics is, uh, this is the definition, a detailed planning and organization of any large, complex operation. For some of you, your Christmas fits right in that. It's large, it's complex, and there's a lot of work that goes in. You've got a special Christmas calendar, you've got Christmas folders, you have Christmas boxes, all of these things that you have scheduled out. Uh, I was looking around last night. Here's just some things. If you're average, which, of course, you're all above average, but if you're average, here is some, here's some Christmas logistics for you to look at. You'll send out 28 Christmas cards. You'll spend $656 on gifts. This next one I don't think is true, but it's on the Internet, and everything on the Internet is true. Walk five miles from the parking lot to stores. I, can't, I don't know where you're parking if that's... If that's what you have, 15 hours shopping, the average person gets elbowed three times in the shopping process, three hours gift wrapping, that's why they have those little bags, just so you know. When Santa comes to our house, he does not wrap anything, so that saves us some time. 15 hours at parties, family gatherings, seven hours traveling, seven hours preparing your Christmas dinner. Three and a half hours shopping, three hours and 42 minutes in the kitchen, and it takes 30 minutes to eat it. So there's your bang for your buck on Christmas. So those are just some of the details that you're organizing. Uh, If you need a plan, some of you are schedulers, a plan would help you execute Christmas better. This is a a survey of 4,100 people. It was commissioned by Jarlsberg. That's a cheese company. I'm not certain what they're dog in this fight is, but here's a typical Christmas schedule. According to these 4,100 people, you get up at 7.55. Those are people without young children. 8.19, open presents. I don't know what they're doing for that 20, at our house it doesn't, there's not a 26-minute gap between getting up and opening presents, eating breakfast, that's about right. It takes half an hour to tear through everything. You see the first chocolate munch. You see the first fight there at 9.58, amen, I mean a.m., then you've got the telling off of the kids. So that first fight is with your spouse because you're fighting with your children an hour later. That's most likely when you can't open the packaging. You can't, somebody forgot to buy batteries for the toy. At some point, 
that's where those fights come in. You see the first alcoholic drink, don't quite make it till noon. None of you do that, of course. <laughs> Christmas dinner, 324. We know that's only going to last for half an hour anyway. Somebody's asleep by 5. I don't know if that's grandma or grandpa. Somebody's asleep by 5. A board game, nice little family bonding, trying to make up for the argument and telling the kids off. And then you're in bed by 11.40. So you can have that. That's just a, a, plan, a sample plan for you, us trying to make your Christmas a little easier. Uh, logistics. The first Christmas, there were some logistics that God had to uh, deal. There's some circumstances he had to overcome. There were some details he needed to work and bring together. Our theme scripture for Advent is Luke 2. This is verse 10. But the angel said to them, do not be afraid. We've already looked at that. I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all people. That's what Brandon talked about last week. Today in the town of David, a Savior has been born to you. He is Christ the Lord. I want to look at that first phrase. Today in the town of David, a Savior has been born to you. We focused a lot last week. Brandon kind of painted this picture of this gift, this Savior that we've been given. I was thinking about the first few words, today in the town of David. Uh, the today there is important. In Daniel 9.25, we read this. No one understand this, from the issuing of the decree to restore and rebuild Jerusalem until the anointed one, that's the Messiah, the ruler comes, there will be uh, seven sevens and 62 sevens, so that's 69 sevens. It will be rebuilt with streets and a trench, but in times of trouble. Um, the Jews understood this verse in Daniel to be a prophecy concerning the timing of the Messiah's coming. The anointed one, the Messiah, would be in 69 sevens, a seven they understood to be a period of seven years. 69 times seven, that's 483 years. And if you do the math, the uh, Hebrews, used, the Jews used a lunar calendar. If you do the math, this decree was, just, was issued in 444 B.C. by a guy named, I don't know how to say it, it's A-R-T-A-X-E-R-X-E-S. You can say that however you want to. Nobody's going to tell you you're wrong because nobody knows how to say it. So... That guy issued a decree to Nehemiah in 444 and said, rebuild Jerusalem. If you do the math from that decree in 444, that's about the time when Jesus comes on the scene publicly. Um, some people have it down to when he enters into Jerusalem. I think that's probably a bit of a stretch to nail it down to the day. But that's about, it's right in the neighborhood of when Jesus' um, uh, public ministry begins leading up to his death. And crucifixion. So there's a timing issue for God. That's part of the logistics of all of this. There was a, a time when all of this had to happen. And we've had this promise of a Messiah for centuries. And everything kind of came together during this time, these few years um, leading up to probably 6 or 7 B.C. is when most people would say Jesus was born. There were things that were happening politically that were outside of Jerusalem that made uh, it uh, an ideal time for a savior to come. There was a common language. There was relative safety. Everyone was under the Roman Empire, and the, it was easy to travel and to get around. Jews had been spread throughout the entire known world at that point, so everybody knew there was a Messiah on the way. Again, you had this timing in Daniel. Also, Micah 5, 2, and 4 says this, But you, Bethlehem, though you are small among the clans of Judah, out of you will come for me one who will be ruler over Israel, whose origins are from of old, from ancient times. He will stand and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord and the majesty of the name of the Lord his God. And they will live securely, for then his greatness will reach 
to the ends of the earth. There's also this issue of where. Today in the town of David. The town of David is Bethlehem. That was his hometown. And the Jews widely understood this to be a prophecy. The Messiah is going to be born in Bethlehem. In Matthew 2, that whole birth story, the wise men come. I don't know if you noticed here, we have a wise man who's still on the way. He hasn't quite made it to the manger. I'm not sure why he's separate from the rest. But they're on the way moving towards Jesus, and they get to uh, Herod, and they say, where's this king? And Herod says, whoa, there's another king. And he asks the Jewish leaders, where's this king of the Jews supposed to be born? And they quote this passage from Matthew, Micah 5, 2, and say, Bethlehem. In John 7, there's all this controversy around whether Jesus is or is not the Messiah. And these, just the, the regular people, not the religious elite, the regular people say, he can't be. We know he's from Nazareth. And the, and the Messiah is supposed to come from Bethlehem. It was commonly understood. Micah 5 was a Messianic prophecy. The Messiah will come from Bethlehem. There were some other logistics that were involved. If you read through the Old Testament, there were some things that were to be true of Jesus in terms of his ancestry, not just when he was going to be born and where he was going to be born. There were some other logistics here. I think we have that slide that some prophecies that needed to be fulfilled born of a woman that's easy that where we all fit but you also you have some things about his um ancestry you have abraham's family then isaac not ishmael then jacob not esau and then within jacob had 12 sons one of them judah and then david coming from the line of judah the big one obviously born of a virgin that's pretty rare so you have all of those things that were true of the messiah God had to de deal with, handle all of those details, all of those logistics had to be worked out in order for the Messiah to come, for people to say, hey, that's him. All of these signs were indications to people like us that Jesus was the Messiah. God knew that he was. He sent him. But for us, looking at it from our perspective, all of these circumstances, all of these signs pointed to Jesus as the one. Mary met all of these criteria, the top six. She was a woman, obviously. She had the right genealogy. She was a teenager. She was a virgin at the time when the angel Gabriel appeared, but she actually was not from Bethlehem. She lived in Nazareth, which was about 80 miles away. That's a three-day journey, and I've wondered, why did God pick her? David had at least 19 kids. There's no way in the world that somebody from his family didn't still live in Bethlehem, in his hometown. There was a girl like Mary in Bethlehem. There was somebody else who met all of those criteria. A teenage girl who had not been married from the family of David. There had to be. So why does God pick Mary, who's 80 miles away, which isn't a big deal to us. That's here to Athens. It's not. doesn't seem like a huge deal, but it's a three-day journey. She's got to get there in order to fulfill this prophecy, why didn't he just pick someone who already lived in the right town? I think for us, one of the things to pull out of all of this is your calling trumps your circumstances. Liz Walker this morning talked about doing your deal, and that's, a, that's the thing for us. If you're alive, God has good works that he has created for you to do. He has a dream for you, purpose, destiny, plan. I don't care what word you use. If you're alive, even if you're not yet a Christian, when he created you in your mother's womb, he also created a life for you to live. And he, and he created that life based on you. He picked Mary because she was the best woman for the job. 
He didn't care that she lived in the wrong town. She was the right woman for the job, and then he, God, worked the circumstances to get her where she needed to be. And the same thing is true for us. When, once you, when you feel like God has spoken to you and said, hey, this is my thing, it's to coach soccer, then it doesn't matter where you happen to be. He'll move you into the right position. And that's kind of what I want us to look at this morning, how the logistics tie into us doing our deal. There was a census every 14 years. The Roman government issued a census every 14 years. We know there was one in 20 AD, and you can do the math back, and so it fits that there was one about 7 BC, which works with all the other timing for when Jesus would have been born. Mary didn't have to go. Joseph did. He would have had to go to Bethlehem, his hometown. But Mary went, and I don't know why she went. I don't know if she went because Joseph was afraid of leaving her because she's the, a, a, an unwed, pregnant teenager, and that's dangerous uh, in that society. She could have theoretically been stoned for that. So if he wanted to keep her close for her own safety, I don't know if she was about to pop, and Joseph said, we got to get, you know, you got to stay with me because this baby's about to come. You know, kind of the picture that she walks into Jerusalem the night of the delivery. There's not really anything scriptural to, to back that up. We don't know. We just know that Jesus was born in Bethlehem. So we don't know how far along she was. She spent at least three months with her um, aunt Elizabeth. So somewhere in that second, third trimester, they go to Jerusalem. And again, Mary doesn't have to. I don't know if they fought about it. I don't know if Mary insisted. I'm, my assumption is that they knew these prophecies. Joseph would have. He was a devout and upright man, everything we know of Mary. She was a woman of faith. They took seriously when this angel Gabriel appeared to them and said, hey, here's the deal. Mary, your deal, you're going to be the mother of God. Joseph, your deal is you're going to stand next to her. All of this is good. All of this is coming from me. And if you go back and read what the angel says, particularly to Mary, it's very specific, very clear language indicating it, this, is, this is the Christ this is the Messiah. And I wondered during that time if they talked about it and said, you know, we know this kid, he's got to be born in Bethlehem. That's what Micah says. And if I take seriously what this angel said to me, we, I got to get there. So you're going, so I'm coming with you. I don't have to, but I'm coming with you. And then she gets there and there's no place for them to stay. And that doesn't deter them because they know this is where we need to be. So they go have Jesus, probably not in a stable like that, probably something more like a cave. They find a cave, and that's where Jesus is born. They don't allow the fact that there's no guest rooms, there's no space for them to keep them from fulfilling what they know to be their deal. So for us, many of you know, if I said, tell me, what is God, what, what's your Ephesians 2.10? What are the good works that God has created for you to do? There's clarity for you in that. Gabriel has not appeared to you. He's most likely not going to appear to you. If you're waiting on that, you're going to be waiting a long time. But you have a sense. You can write it down on an index card, and with at least 85 90% certainty, say, this is what God has called me to do. I don't know exactly what it looks like, but I have a strong sense. These are my good works. And then in the Christian world, what we begin to do after that is we start looking for signs. And signs can be very tricky for us to interpret. My opinion is signs can only be read accurately in retrospect, which means they're not helpful in the moment because you don't know what, which way they're pointing. Some signs look like this. These are theoretically all... That's a road sign somewhere. 
But that's how some of you feel. You're trying to read the circumstances in your life. What else do we have? That's how you get. You can't go anyway. You can't go forward. You can't go backwards. You can't go left. And you can't. What are you supposed to do? You know, we talk in the church all the time about red lights and green lights. This is an intersection in London. Let's see. Good luck with that. What? But this again, for some of you, life-wise, that's how you feel. If you if you're thinking about one slice of your life, it looks green, and another it looks red. You've got flashing yellows. And this is where many of us wind up with God. We feel like this, and it's just confusing. And we feel like we're just going around this circle. We're getting some information. It's not working out. We're apologizing. Maybe God's apologizing. It just it doesn't work out. And we get frustrated. One of the greatest enemies of joy is frustration. I will say this kind of absolutely. If you're frustrated, joy is deeper. We just said it's delight in your life regardless of pain or pleasure. But frustration erodes joy. The more frustration you experience in your life, the more difficult it is to live joyfully. And one of the things that can cause frustration is feeling like you're just walking around in a circle. You're trying to figure out, God, I'm trying to get from A to B. I know the thing that you've called me to do. I'm trying to get there. And feeling like you can't, that can be incredibly frustrating. For some of us, we're like Mary, very clear. You're going to be the mother of Jesus. He's not saying that to any of us. You're going to be the mother of God. And she knows, well, that's just an issue of geography. I've got to get from Nazareth to Bethlehem, and here's the way. Easy for her. It was just a matter of her making a choice to do that. Whatever she had to say to Joseph to get there, the difficulties or whatever of traveling, but it was easy for her to go from A to B. Some of you, something with medicine. You're going to be a medical missionary. You're going to be a doctor in underprivileged areas. You're going to find the cure to cancer. Like That's your deal. Then go to medical school. That's easy to get from A to B. Just go to med school. You have to. God is not going to download all of that information into you while you sleep. You've got to go. You've got to study. You've got to work. You've got to intern. You've got to be a resident. You've got to do all that stuff. That's the path for you to doing your deal. If you feel like your deal is in another country, then go to another country. Use your vacation and visit. Develop contacts there so when you go, you have somebody to connect with. There's a couple of times in the Bible where God picks somebody up and puts them somewhere else. It's probably not going to happen for you. I've never heard of that happening for anybody transatlantically, where they go to sleep in Marietta and they wake up in Kenya. Never have I heard that. You're going to have to go. Those are easy things. If you feel confident, this is my deal, and you can see how to get from A to B, then you have a responsibility as a child of God to do what's in your power to get from A to B. Mary had to saddle up the donkey and go. That was her responsibility. She knew the baby needed to be born in Bethlehem. She's in Nazareth. In Nazareth. It, it's not a spiritual equation. It's geography. It's logistics. And for many of us, that's where we get stuck. We're looking for something more supernatural, maybe. And it's just simple. It's a matter of logistics, of circumstances of moving forward. Just get on your donkey and go. You know how to get from A to B. So start walking and get from A to B. If you're not willing to do that, one of two things for me. Either you're not convinced that these are the good works that God has for you, and if that's 
the case, then we can talk about that. And we can help you become more sure. You're never going to be 100% certain. Mary had an, like, top dog angel show up and speak to her. This was not an underling. This is Gabriel. He doesn't appear very often in the Bible. And told her, here's the thing. If you, re- if you remember back in the summer, we were looking at Mark. I think it's in Mark 4. When Jesus actually begins to walk in his deal. And he's preaching and he's teaching and he's healing and he's casting out demons. He's being the Messiah. This one, the angel, angel Gabriel, we say if an angel appeared in my room, that's all I need. An angel appeared in her room and told her. And what does she say when Jesus starts doing his thing? He's nuts. Get him home. She tries to prevent him from fulfilling his destiny. There's never 100% certainty for any of us. If that's what you're looking for, you're never going to be there. But if, there's, if it's still too murky for you, if you're, not, if you're not willing to make the choices, then maybe you're not convinced it's the thing, and let's talk about that. Or you're being disobedient. Those, to me, are the only two choices. If, if you know how to get from A to B and you're not walking from A to B, either you're not convinced B is actually the destination or you're being disobedient. Either actively disobedient, you're rebelling against God, most likely it's passive apathetic, lazy. Those of you who have children, you don't care if your children are actively disobeying you or if they're ignoring you. They're, dis- they're not doing what you ask them to do and you respond accordingly. And the same thing is true with the Lord. Whether we're actively rebelling against him or just kind of ignoring him, benign neglect, the result is the same. It's disobedience. Now for some of you, you're not married. It's not clear. Things are much murkier for you. You might have an idea, but it's not, you can't, you can't see how to get from A to B. And that can be extraordinarily frustrating as well. If you're married, your frustration is self-imposed. It's because you're unwilling to take the necessary steps. And so that frustration you're feeling is a result of your own unwillingness to get on the donkey and go to Bethlehem. And if you'll do that, that frustration will begin to ease and you'll begin to experience joy at a greater level. But for others of you, you're more like Joseph, not Mary's husband Joseph, but Joseph in the Old Testament. Things are murky, and the frustration you feel is really, it's because you don't feel like God's doing a very good job of communicating. Things are not very clear. I'm going to try to move through this really quick. So Joseph is the uh, 11th of 12 children of Jacob. Jacob has 12 sons. Joseph is 11. 11th and he's the favorite and it's obvious that he's the favorite if you're a parent I would say probably if you have a favorite don't make it quite so plain to your other children as Joseph does uh, as Jacob does for Joseph he gives him a coat that's made of these this ornamental fabric so everybody knows says Israel loved Joseph more than any of his other sons because he'd been born to him in his old age he made a richly ornamented robe for him when his brothers saw their father loved him more than any of them They hated Joseph and could not speak a kind word to him. Joseph is 17 at this point. He has a dream. He tells his dream to his brothers, and they hated him all the more. He said, listen to this dream. Again, probably not the wisest thing to do if you know you're already the favorite. Don't tell your brothers this dream. We were binding sheaves of grain out in the field when suddenly my sheaf rose up and stood upright while yours gathered around me and bowed down. Awesome. His brother said, do you intend to reign over us? Will you actually rule us? And they hated him all the more because of this dream and what he'd said. Then he has another dream, same thing, except this time his mom and dad bowed to him, down to him, and he tells them that 
as well. His brothers don't enjoy him at this point. They're off tending flocks. Jacob says to Joseph, go check on them. They go, they see him coming, and they say, let's kill him. And then we'll see about those dreams. We'll see who bows down to who. So Joseph shows up, and then Reuben, the oldest, says, you know what? I don't, it's not going to be good if we kill him. They throw him in a pit. Uh, Reuben has this idea. He doesn't tell anybody to save him. Another one of the brothers kind of has a similar idea, but they're unwilling. They don't talk about it. Just on their own, they kind of have this idea. Um, a group of uh, slave runners comes by, and they say, hey, listen, rather than killing him, let's just sell him to these guys. It's not going to be good if his blood is on our hands. They sell him to a group of Ishmaelites for 20 pieces of silver. He winds up in Egypt. Now, Joseph had been taken down to Egypt. Potiphar, an Egyptian, who was one of Pharaoh's officials, the captain of the guard, brought him, or excuse me, bought him from the Ishmaelites who had taken him. The Lord was with Joseph, and he prospered, and he lived in the house of his Egyptian master. When his master saw that the Lord was with him and that the Lord gave him success in everything he did, Joseph found favor in his eyes and became his attendant. Potiphar put him in charge of his household, and he entrusted to his care everything he owned. So Joseph, he has this dream, all of his brothers bowing down to him. Pretty quick after that, he winds up in a pit and sold into slavery. It was murky. What exactly is this going to look like? Probably not that. It's probably not what you're thinking. My, I'm going to be chief. I'm the most favored son, so maybe he could see that his dad was going to somehow leave him something that would be totally against um, custom at that point as the 11th son. The first son would, uh, would receive a double portion, but maybe Joseph's thinking, well, because I'm the favorite, dad's going to do something special, and all of these guys are going to bow down to me. But right off the bat, he gets sold into slavery. He's in a foreign country, but he begins to receive favor there. He gets sold to this guy named Potiphar. He's elevated in Potiphar's house. He's running everything. Things are going very well. Then he runs into another detour or roadblock, however you want to see that. Joseph's a good-looking guy. Potiphar's wife tries to seduce him. Joseph, being upright, says, listen, no. I, I've got, I can do anything I want in this house. You're the only thing he's kept from me. I'm not doing this. She continues to throw herself at him. He resists. And then one day, she's very aggressive, grabs his clothes, trying to undress him, and he pulls away. She's humiliated, embarrassed, and angry. And she says to her husband when he gets home, that Hebrew that you sent here, he came here to rape me. Potiphar, of course, is going to believe his wife over a foreign slave, throws Joseph in jail. So Joseph's master took him, put him in prison, the place where the king's prisoners were confined. But while Joseph was there in the prison, the Lord was with him. He showed him kindness and granted him favor in the eyes of the prison warden. So the warden put Joseph in charge of all those held in the prison, and he was made responsible for all that was done there. The warden paid no attention to anything under Joseph's care because the Lord was with Joseph and gave him success in whatever he did. So you see a similar story. So we have, again, this dream. That was Joseph's deal. In some way, his brothers are going to bow down to him. I don't exactly know what that looks like, he's saying, as a 17-year-old. So he tells his family they totally take it the wrong way. Uh, sell him into slavery, not a step in the right direction. Things are going well in Potiphar's house. He's beginning to be elevated uh, in that place. Then he's falsely accused of rape, thrown into jail. Again, step in the wrong direction. He's in jail. Two of the members of Pharaoh's court, a cupbearer and a baker, are put in jail as well. They've displeased Pharaoh. Uh, Joseph connects with them. He sees one morning that they're upset. Why are y'all upset? We had dreams and we don't understand them. 
God interprets dreams. Tell them to me. The cupbearer tells him a dream, and the baker does, and Joseph interprets them. He says to the cupbearer, in three days, you're going to be restored to your position. And when you're restored to your position, remember me. I'm, I'm, there's no good reason for me to be here. Just remember me. And the cupbearer says, okay. And he says to the baker, sorry, three days, you're going to get your head cut off. And then it happened. Three days later, both of those things happened. And Joseph's probably thinking, all right, this is it. I interpreted this guy's dream. He's going to get me out of here. And the Bible says the cupbearer forgot about him. Two years forgotten about in jail. To me, this has got to be the worst two years of his life at this point. Getting betrayed by his brother, sold into slavery is terrible. Being a slave in Potiphar's house is not great. Falsely accused of rape, bad. Thrown in jail, terrible. But when they forget about him, there is no legal system. There's no public defender's office. There's no constitution. There's no court to appeal to. He's a foreign slave in, a, in jail. He's got no hope unless somebody just pulls him out. His dad, who probably actually loves him enough to do something about it, thinks he's dead. His brothers, if they even care because of guilt about trying to help him, don't even know where he's at. He's stuck, depressed, despairing, I would imagine, in jail for two years. Pharaoh has a dream. Pharaoh's the leader of Egypt. He has this dream. Nobody can interpret it. And the cupbearer, two years later, says, oh, wait, there's a guy. His name's Joseph. He can tell you what the dream means. They bring Joseph up. Pharaoh tells him this dream. Joseph interprets it. It's based, there's going to be seven years of, of plenty and then seven years of famine. Pharaoh's amazed that he can interpret this dream and says this to him. The plant, so then Joseph says, you need to put somebody in charge who can run this thing. And Pharaoh says, well, how about you? You seem to have... Uh, the wisdom to do this. So the plan seemed good to Pharaoh and to all his officials. So he said, can we find anyone like this man, one in whom is the spirit of God? Then Pharaoh said to Joseph, since God has made all this known to you, since God revealed all of these future plans to you, there's no one so dis discerning and wise as you. You shall be in charge of my palace and all my people are to submit to your orders. Only re with respect to the throne will I be greater than you. So Pharaoh said to Joseph, I hereby put you in charge of the whole land of Egypt. So that's a pretty big turnaround in a day. You go from being forgotten about in jail to being second in command of the only of the superpower of the day. So things play out as Joseph predicted. There's seven years of plenty. He harvests and stores a whole bunch of this extra grain. In seven years there's a drought, there's a famine. People begin to come to him and say, hey, can you help us? He's distributing grain. Jacob, who's in Canaan, hears, hey, there's grain in Egypt, and he sends um, his ten oldest. He keeps Benjamin home, He sends, who's the youngest. He sends the ten oldest to Egypt to get grain, and this is uh, chapter 42, verse 6. Now, Joseph was the governor of the land, the one who sold grain to all its people. So when Joseph's brothers arrived, they bowed down to him with their faces to the ground. So that's the fulfillment of the dream. Now, let me try to step back here. There is no land of opportunity at this point. If you're a 17-year-old son of a shepherd in Canaan, then you're going to be a shepherd in Canaan. That's it. The only question is how much of the flock of your dad are you going to get? How much of his stuff is he going to leave you? Nobody goes off to college and gets a job and moves away from home. Like You don't do that. Who your parents are, that's who you're going to be period dot the end. 
there's a logistical problem here. God says, Joseph's my man. He's the one that I need to save his family. Remember, that was the family line for the Messiah. It's through Joseph, I mean through Jacob, not through Esau. So God's got to save them through this famine 20 years in the future. He sees Joseph and says, that 17-year-old kid, he's the one that I want. But there's a problem. He's a 17-year-old kid who's a shepherd in Canaan. Egypt is running the show. So how do I get a 17-year-old shepherd's kid into a position of power and influence in Egypt so that he can save his family? And look at the path he takes. Well, you know what? First, I've got to get him to Egypt. So how do I do that? Why don't we get him sold into slavery? I'm not saying God did that. I'm saying God used that. All right, so now we get him to Egypt. We get him into um, somebody's house. He's getting some skills. To be a shepherd is wonderful. It doesn't teach you anything about running a country. The skills that Joseph is going to need administratively to uh, handle this grain program for an entire nation. It's a massive, massive amount of uh, information that he's going to have to gather that you don't get tending sheep. So let's put him in charge of a house, and let's see how he does with that. And he does great, and that's wonderful, but I st- how do I get him from Potiphar's house, who at least is an Egyptian, to Pharaoh's house? There, there, there are no job openings posted. That's not how things work. So how do we get him there? How about this? Let's get him into Pharaoh's house, which is jail at this point. At least we're, we're getting him closer to Pharaoh by putting him in jail. How do we get him in jail? Let's falsely accuse him of rape. I'm not saying God inspired her to do that. I'm saying God used it. Then he's rubbing shoulders with people who do know Pharaoh. Potiphar most likely didn't. Now he's rubbing shoulders with people who actually are in Pharaoh's world. Well, how do we get him from jail to here? Let's interpret these dreams. That's a skill that at some point may come in handy but it's not going to come in handy now because the famine is still nine years away. And if the cupbearer says to Pharaoh the day he gets out, hey, there's this guy who can interpret a dream, you know what Pharaoh says? I've got dozens who can interpret dreams. How many do you want? I don't need another. That's what I pay these men to do. They interpret dreams for me. He's got to wait. He has to wait for two more years. We see it, oh, it's just two years. Hang in there. For Joseph, he doesn't know. He can't flip the page. It's his life. And then two years later, we get him from here to Pharaoh when nobody else can interpret the dream, when Pharaoh is desperate and is willing to say, not just, hey, you got the dream right. Why don't you run the show? It's not enough just to know what's going to happen. Pharaoh actually puts him in charge of the program so that God's able to use Joseph to save his family. If you read ahead in Genesis, his whole family, all 70 of them, come to Egypt and they get set up in the the best part of the Egyptian countryside. And that's where they stay until Moses leads them out 400 years later. It's a pretty amazing story from our perspective. If you're Joseph, it's 13 years of H-E double hockey sticks for him. He doesn't know I have this dream. I don't quite know what it's supposed to look like. And maybe it was arrogance. Maybe it was youthful exuberance, something. He tells his family. 
And what happens is he winds up down, down, going from favored son to forgotten in jail over the course of 13 years. And then he's elevated in an instant. And he had no idea that was coming. He was faithful in every one of those stops. When he was at Potiphar's house, he was faithful. He did his job there. When he was in the jail, he was faithful. He did his job there. Never knowing how any of that was going to tie in to what God had for him. I don't think Joseph ever made the connection. In order for the, my, my brothers are going to bow down to me when they come and ask me for food because they're starving, because there's a famine in the land. He didn't make that connection. Only God knew that. And in the right time, Joseph was in the right place because God was able to move him there. Tom Tanner was my campus pastor. He's been my youth pastor, my campus pastor, my boss, all kinds of things. When we were in college, I can't tell you how many times he would stand up on a Wednesday night and say, God doesn't look for influential people to bring to faith. He looks for faithful people, and then he'll put them in positions of influence. And you see that with Joseph, and you see that with Mary. She's the one. I'll get her to Bethlehem. That's not an issue for me. She's the one. He sees in Joseph, he's the guy. I'll get him to Egypt, but he's the guy that I want. And the same thing is true for you. You're the guy. You're the girl. Whatever these good works are that God has called you to, he's called you to them. There were no clerical er errors in heaven. If you know, it's because he's told you, and he wants you to walk in those things. He can work out the logistics. For some of us, we're Mary, and we need to get on the donkey, and we need to go to Bethlehem. For some of us, we're Joseph. We, don't, we can't see the way from A to B, and all you can do right now is hang on and be faithful where you are, trusting that just like Joseph, in the right time, God is going to elevate you. The skills and the experiences and the character shaping that's going on in jail or in Potiphar's house or wherever you happen to be is going to be necessary for where he is eventually going to place you. It's a hard thing to do at times. But if you trust, God's called me to this. These are the good works. It's easier to have joy in the midst of some of that uncertainty. Let's pray. Lord, I do thank you for every man and woman in this room. And I thank you that when you were knitting them together, you were creating a life for each of us. And for some people they know, it's clear. And God, my prayer for them is that they would move from point A to point B, whatever the factors are that are within their control. God, that they would do what's necessary to align their life with your calling upon their life. Fear would not get in the way. Logistical concerns would not get in the way. And God, I know there are others, and this is salt in a wound because they don't know. And every time we talk about it, it just highlights to the fact, I don't know why I'm here. I don't know what the good works are. It's murky at best. And my prayer for them, one, is for clarity. God, that you would speak more clearly. And then secondly, God, I would pray, wherever they find themselves, that they would be faithful in that situation. 
They would not grow frustrated. They're not throwing the towel. They wouldn't quit. They wouldn't despair. They wouldn't gripe and complain, God. That they would trust, even if they feel forgotten in jail. And at the right time, you're able to move them into the right place because they're the right person. In Jesus' name, amen. We're going to close with communion. And I ran a little late, so our worship guys are up the street for Common Ground. So we're going to have communion without music. Y'all can do that, right? Actually, why don't you play a little CD softly in the background. So if you're helping with communion, y'all come forward. This is how we take communion at Stonebridge. You'll come up by row, break off a piece of bread, dip it in the juice. We're going to have ministry teams up in the corners, and we will love to pray with you. If anything I shared today, if that stirred your heart in some way, we would love to pray with you about that. If you have something else going on, I'll pray with you about that as well. A couple of weeks ago, I said, write on a card the areas of your life where you want to see